and welcome to the latest episode of I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. My name is Russell Stratton and my co-host here, Ken Cameron. Hello, everyone. Glad to be with you again. And uh, what today's episode, we had we had so much fun talking about some of the worst bosses that people had sent in. There were some right effing individuals that we were being that were being described to us, and um, we got some good feedback on that. People liked that episode. I think they could resonate, Ken, with with a number of those terrible bosses that we all hope not to have but probably always ex- all experience at least once in our work uh, career uh, that we have some additional tales that have been sent to us that we would talk about but i understand before we uh, get into other people's tales you had one yourself that you had uh, remembered from our, from our last conversation it's true russell right after we finished that podcast i slapped myself in the center of my forehead and i said why didn't i think about this story any or any sooner so i'm glad that we revisited the subject so that i can revisit this it has to do with one of the first real jobs i had when i was a young man so this is kind of not the summer job that you get that's uh, kind of not a real job when you're a uh, when you're a, a child and you're uh, a preteen those jobs that your parents get for you but this was kind of the first job that I'd gotten for myself. Uh, it was a friend of a friend that kind of told me about the job and I went and I applied for it. I got interviewed. It was with a landscaping company. We're in London, Ontario in this day. We're back in the uh, late 1980s. And oh my gosh, I've just dated myself. Uh, we, we, let's edit that. For, let's edit that portion out so that the viewers don't get don't get. It, it may, you may, may be in the late eighties, Ken, but you, you certainly don't look old enough. You must have been a very small child when this story took place. Well, that's just it, right? So I, I was a muscular small child working in landscaping. <laughs> let me tell you. So here I am, muscular toddler, and um, I'm working with the uh, this landscaping company. And um, you know, he he. This was early on. I'd been maybe working for them for like a week or two, and he sent me off to this site, and I was supposed to dig holes for the trees to come along. So he had me digging. And um, then he went off to do something else. And he was going to come back and check on me. And in the interim, a small seven-year-old boy, five-year-old boy came by and started talking my ear off while I was digging. And I you know, made sure that he was standing at a safe distance and that I was digging away. And it, it didn't let it slow me down. I made sure that I was still digging very rapidly uh, or as, as rapidly as my, my young arms would allow me to. Um, but this young five-year-old just was talking, 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 as five-year-olds are wont to do. There was no parent anywhere in sight. So I wasn't, I was a little bit, a little bit reluctant to like send him off to uh, home when I didn't know where it was. And certainly he was entertaining enough and it was far more entertaining than if I even had a radio playing or anything like that. The uh, owner of the landscaping company came back and uh, watch, watching me digging. So I redoubled my efforts. But, you know, the child kept talking and I would look at the owner of the company and smile at him and indicate the small boy as boy. Isn't this isn't this boy hilarious as I moved on to the next tree that I was digging. And then eventually, uh, I guess either the young boy wandered off or the mother finally came and got him. I can't remember which. And the owner and I said to the owner of the company, I said, boy, wasn't that boy hilarious? And I could tell that he was all kind of frowny. And I so I in an effort to find out what was going on, I said, wasn't that boy hilarious? I made sure that he wasn't slow me down. I kept making sure I was working, uh, you know, as uh, as well as I could. But the owner was still. He revealed. He said, "Well, y- you should have picked up on my body language that the boy shouldn't have been here. It was dangerous to have this young boy around. You know, you could he could have been struck by something." And I was like, "Well, I'm keeping him from a safe distance." But more to the point, boss, why didn't you just tell me? 
And the owner came back again and said, you should have just picked it up from my body language. You should have known what I was thinking. So the reason I'm bringing this story up about a bad boss is here's a boss who's clearly a very poor communicator in the sense that he knew exactly what it was he wanted done. And he knew he wanted to say it to me, but he simply refused to say it. And he wanted to, or whether he wanted to or not, but he simply just did not take any any action to remedy the situation. And if, as he said, there was a safety concern that here was this toddler hanging around a worksite and you should be shooing him away, then owner, why didn't you do that yourself? And then thirdly, keep in mind that I myself was a, a young man and so inexperienced at work. So perhaps the owner could have realized that I wasn't familiar with the protocols and I wasn't experienced enough to think that this would be a danger. I wasn't used to working around small children. So if it was in fact a danger, perhaps he should have trained me, his staff, better. The good news is that this didn't seem to impinge upon my performance in any way because he kept me employed for the entire rest of the summer, which ended up being about two and a half or even three months, So, or maybe even four months now that I think about it. So it really wasn't even uh, – uh, it didn't impact my, my performance review, apparently. <laughs> well, that, well, that that's good to hear. But it was an interesting when you were saying that, Ken, because I was thinking that you know, how often have, have we come across this in – in, in our in our work or in, in our careers, each of us, where people will sort of say, they will assume things. They will assume that people know without checking out, do they actually know? And the other thing, so if you're not sure whether people are aware of, you know, safety protocols or, um, you know, legal protocols that are required, well, did you make sure that when you were, you know, in, uh, giving an orientation for people or inducting them into the, the organisation or the job that you went through what was expected of them, and what were some of the do's and don'ts. Because otherwise, you're just saying, well, I assumed that everybody knew. You know, well, we can think. There's a lot of things that we could assume people know, but doesn't necessarily mean that they do know. Um, and, and the other point that you raised that I thought was in- particularly interesting was, it was like, well, if there's something I needed to, he needed to tell you that it wasn't safe or he didn't like having that young boy in the vicinity while you were working, he just needed to say that. Instead, he stood there watching you doing something that he thought you shouldn't be doing, didn't say anything to you, and then sort of waited for you to say something. And then go, ah, well, I sort of knew <laughs> knew you shouldn't be doing that. And you're like, well, why didn't you say it? So we talked about this before about you know sort of you know setting people up for success or setting up people to people to fail. And if, you know if you're if you're watching somebody do something and you need to step in and and correct it, then why don't you do that? Because it's not some sort of game that you're going to come up and sort of say, is there something you shouldn't have done, you know, and hope that you go, oh, yeah, I shouldn't have had that kid there. So, yeah, I think if, if, if there's an issue that needs to be dealt with, deal with it there and then. It's back to this early proactive management action. And don't assume. You know, what's the old saying? Don't assume it makes an ass out of you and me. And, you know, it's uh, pretty much the case. Well, and the thing that baffles me to this day, especially now that I repeat the story to you, is if it really was a safety concern for a toddler, then you really do need to take early proactive action. Why are you waiting if it really is a safety concern? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of in the as you were telling me in my mind, it was playing through as one of those sort of semi, uh, sort of comedy um, skits that was taking place. That was getting going to have something in here as to what the what. 
you know, the boss was doing, but it seems seems strange, as you say. If there was an issue, why didn't he just he start say something rather than let it continue and wait until afterwards to then say, well, there was a problem with that? Uh, it seemed to be quite quite odd way of behaving. But, what about uh, you, Russell? Do you have a story about a bad boss that you may have had that you want to share with us? Uh, well, I, I, I do, and one came to mind because when we finished our last podcast, like you, I was thinking back on it, and I thought we talked a lot about you know the interaction with somebody who is our um, you know, permanent boss, I suppose. But what I, I came across an example that I remembered of of having somebody who was a client. So they were a boss in the way that I was working for them for an extended period of time. Um, and an issue there that came in of, of somebody who – an expression that I know I've used before that you've always liked was they had slopey shoulders, i.e., you know, nothing was going to stick. It was going to uh, slide off in terms of what was uh, was being, was being what they weren't going to say and weren't going to address. So briefly what the issue was is I was working for a, a client where I was providing a series of um, training courses uh, I had worked with them for a couple of years. Uh, it, was, it was a sort of uh, number of, uh, venues that I used to go to quite often it was the same uh, people there that you saw who set it up the sort of administration staff and then it would be a different group of staff that I was training but the, the headquarters the lady who was the coordinator of this who was supposed to book things like the room and refreshments and make sure there was a projector and a laptop and all this type of thing um, wasn't probably as we say as efficient as she could have been. So she'd come in a little while before and what tended to happen a couple of times is you turn up and, you know, she hadn't booked refreshments or there was no laptop and you had to sort of always just sort of rushing around at the last minute trying to sort things out, which you no doubt have experienced in presenting before. On this particular occasion, she hadn't not only booked any of the equipment or the refreshments or the room, but hadn't told any of the participants that they were supposed to be there on that particular day. So I turned up, nobody spoke to me, no, nothing about this. Now, when it came back, what she had said was that this was nothing to do with her um, and it, it was me. Somehow I had, I don't know, something I supposedly had or hadn't done. So the client then wanted me to come in because this had caused some embarrassment for them, you know, and it was, it was at one of their sort of you know, senior uh, branches. and what it, So I came in for the conversation with her, and literally sat there and said, look, here's the copies of my emails to you. This is what was confirmed. When I went to the venue, this is the person I spoke to, who I've spoken to before, and this is what they'd said. And basically she turned around and said that I was lying and was trying to cover up what was what was one of her many errors by blaming it on me as the cons- external consultant rather than it was something internally. Even the manager of that facility had sent an email saying, hey, that wasn't down to Russ, that was down to person who was made unnamed. Um, but the client, and for whatever reason, whether he was wanting to protect his employee, whether he, he didn't want to be, you know, uh, have that difficult conversation with her, basically sort of looked at something that was quite clearly untrue. You could quite see that she had made the mistake um, and just decided to blame me. And... After then, she left and off she went, and he sort of said, oh, I'm sorry about that, but, you know, things can be a bit difficult. And I and I was just remember looking at, well, it's okay, so you're going to blame me 
because it's more convenient for you to blame somebody externally than to actually deal with an issue in your own team, which is somebody who is underperforming and their co-workers in other offices know that they're not performing, but you think it's easier to blame to blame me. So that was my uh, my bad boss example there as a client that uh, soon after as this happened again that I said, well, I suggest that we just cut ties with you and um, I, didn't, I didn't work for them anymore. Is, is this why you left the UK? Is this how you ended <laughs> yeah. up in Canada? He's still, he's still looking for me. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, and uh, no, but ironically, he, subsequently, about a year or so later, he left that organization and then reached out to me and said, Oh, could you come and do some work for me with my new organization? Which I thought was, Look, you know, you spent all this time, you know, shitting on me from a great height, trying to blame me for something that, remember, your team was doing, and now suddenly you now want me to come and, and help you out. And could I do it at that original special offer price that I'd done before? Yeah, the answer was no. Aha, aha. So you were lucky enough there that you weren't technically the employee, and so you were able to move on, make your own way, and find other clients. Not all of our listeners will be in that situation, and not all of the listeners who wrote in uh, with their bad boss stories, found themselves in that kind of a situation. It can be really, it can be really difficult. It can be really dispiriting. It can, in fact, sometimes even be traumatic when you are an employee in a situation with a bad boss where you feel trapped. And some of our listeners have written in with some of their stories. So let's share some of those and try to pick those apart, analyze those, and look towards what you can do about those situations. A- absolutely. But before we do, could just one point I think I was on here that struck me about that individual thinking again about is that the issue was is he didn't want to have the difficult conversation with his own employee. And this is something that we've talked about with our workshops. And, you know, I need to effing talk to you. The whole idea behind it was helping people um, be able to be prepared to have those difficult workplace conversations. So perhaps I should go back and contact him all these years later and say, hey, why don't you buy a copy of it or listen to our podcast? You know, <laughs> come and do this because you could have done with that about 12 years ago because you're not doing it. But uh, uh, you can tell him that he's, he's, he's got a starring role in the podcast. And, uh, yeah. In the- Episode. You, you might want to listen to this episode and we'll see if we can recognize yourself. So, uh, so yeah, but let's get, yeah, let's go and get to some of the uh, um, examples that our, that our listeners have written in with. So, I've got one here for you, Ken, that I'm going to share with you. So, this is uh, one of our, um, uh, our subscribers to listen to, and then they, this is in their words My former boss never let you forget a mistake you made no matter how trivial or how long ago it was. She would remind you of it weeks or months later. Mm. So here we have a boss who doesn't let you make mistakes. And when you do make mistakes, they're berating you with those mistakes. And it also doesn't appear from this description that this is a boss who's using these mistakes or missteps as a learning opportunity. The, the, the listener isn't writing in and saying like, you know, that this turned into a constructive conversation or this turned into a learning opportunity or a training moment or a spot coaching opportunity. It literally just seems as if they were reminding you of it, no matter how trivial or long ago the mistake was. So it it, it kind of feels as if the, the that this is really kind of creating a, a psychologically unsafe space. This is a boss who's, um, you know, making it unsafe to make mistakes, right? 
Which is never a good idea anyway, is it really? Because if you want people to be creative, and we've talked about this and people, you know, with some of our um, you know, leaders from history lessons were people that were innovative, they were creative, they would try something new. Um, and if all we do is look to, you know, if you make a mistake, you'll never be allowed to forget it. That doesn't seem to be a particularly good way to foster uh, creativity in the workplace. It's true. It doesn't. And that in, in a lot of our workplaces, we're trying to encourage our employees to be more creative and take more initiative. And this kind of behavior where you're where you're lording people for their or, or lording mistakes over people or you are reminding them constantly of their mistakes doesn't lead to those kinds of creative environments. But it also does something else that can be very dangerous. And that's that in that it, in, it doesn't encourage people to come forward when they've made a mistake, in order to make the system better. And there's a a classic example of this in the literature that comes from Amy Edmonston. And she's actually the person, the Harvard University professor, who coined the expression psychological safety. And she did so as a result of a study that she had been conducting in hospitals. She and her colleagues had been going around to hospitals, and they'd been looking at nursing units and the hand-washing practices within those nursing units. And they were looking at those hospitals that had a high degree of contamination due to improper hand-washing techniques versus those institutions that had a low incidence of infection rate and presumably because they had better hand-washing skills across the whole team. And she correlated those results with the amount of what she coined psychological safety. So in nursing units where the head nurse or the administration would take a mistake that somebody had made and use it as a learning opportunity, they found that more nurses would come forward to say, oh, I did that or I did this thing improperly. Or nurses would share with one another how to do the techniques better. And they would also come forward with better ideas on how to um, make hand washing more appropriate. Like, let's put the sanitizers here instead of here so we don't have to cross the room, et cetera, et cetera. Little tweaks like that. Little incremental changes that taken together added up to big changes. And she compared that to other nursing units in which the bosses did, just as our listener has suggested here, where they never let you forget a mistake, no matter how trivial, no matter how long ago, where they punish people, they're punitive, they shame individuals for making mistakes. What they found was that those nurses would make the same amount of mistakes as the other units, but instead they would hide those mistakes. And they so as a result, then um, things would remain con- uh, contaminated and uh, things would spiral out of control or they would not share their learnings with one another. And so the team as a whole never got any better. And so clearly what we have here in the story that the listeners provided is a boss who creating a psychologically unsafe space. So by extension, we can presume they're creating a less innovative, and less creative space. But we could also extrapolate that perhaps they're creating a physically unsafe environment to some degree as well. Yeah, for sure, particularly if people aren't going to report incidences because they're worried that they're going to be going to be blamed. And I think we need to make that distinction between, you know, somebody being held accountable for a mistake they've made and somebody just never being allowed to forget that they ever made a mistake. And I think they're, they're, they're two quite distinctly different things. And also a third point that if people continue to make the same mistake over and over again, again, that's another issue entirely. But, you know, the fact that people make mistakes 
often they're making mistakes because they're trying something new or they're trying to. And as long as you, um, as you say, you you acknowledge that, you explore why it went wrong and how it can be rectified and do that proactively, then, you know, I would have thought that was a good thing, not a bad thing. You know, that's an interesting segue into our next example that a listener has proposed to us. Here's a, here's a story that I'll share with you, Russell, and then we'll get your feedback. So I'll read it to you in our listeners' words. Here we go. My boss would shut down during appraisal interviews with staff if they disagreed with him. Simply get up without speaking and leave the room. So here we have a boss doing an appraisal interview, um, uh, but they, if the staff disagreed or had any kind of uh, pushback, then the interview would, the appraisal interview would be over immediately. What's your response to that kind of a situation, Russell? Well, we have had a number of of these appraisal related examples, and and I only just uh, published a, a blog article last week about you know five things not to say to your staff at an appraisal. Um, and we talked about the shit sandwich before in terms of feedback. But I, th- I think this is another one of these examples where we have um, a boss who, on one level, perhaps hasn't prepared fully for the for the review, and doesn't think that it's a two way conversation. And as we know, if you're having an appraisal conversation with somebody, it should always be two ways. It's not just you downloading feedback on somebody of what they haven't done or what they have done. It should be that conversation, and we always talk about the four-box reflective model. And for those of our listeners that, that aren't familiar with that, you know, the first thing is about getting the, indiv- the idea is about getting the um, individual to do the talking rather than the boss just downloading feedback to them. So the first box is about getting people to explain what they've um, done well. And then box two is you go and add in anything that they've missed out of what they've done well. Box three is that you they ask them what they could do even better. And they talk about how they could make improvements. And then the box four is your opportunity for you to add in anything else of improvements perhaps that they've missed. And we found that to be very effective with, with our clients over the years, haven't we, Ken? But it, when, when people don't prepare for that and they think it's a one-way conversation and the minute somebody gives them some pushback, they're not sure what to say. I think we had the example last time about the, uh, you know, I don't need to explain myself, I'm your boss. And this is sort of an extension of that. This time I didn't say anything, just get out and walk out because they don't know how to deal with somebody giving some pushback, which could be legitimate or not, but needs to be discussed because it's a review for that individual. It's their performance review that you're having with them as the manager. It's not just how I'm going to bring you in for 40 minutes, why I just tell you what I think of you and you sit there passively and then leave. What's Otherwise, what's the point of having it? Another response that I have here, Russell, is why are we waiting until the end of the year to do the appraisal interview? Why is it all coming at you at once as if you're downloading everything in one big bucket or one big, as you called it, one big shit sandwich? We often encourage our managers to engage in that kind of spot coaching because the learning is much more resonant and it's much more likely to stick when it happens as soon as possible after the incident. Or absolutely. as soon as possible after the after the the learning opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and there should, there's a couple of things just occurred to me. There is that first is there should be no surprises at a year end appraisal because you should have discussed these things with people. It's like consolidating what's been discussed throughout the year. Shouldn't be should be nothing that's dramatically new unless it's happened over the last few weeks. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's the one thing. And, and and the other part of that is you don't give people any chance to improve. 
if you only leave it to the end and just tell them in one go because then what are they supposed to do with that? You're telling them something they did months ago. You know, again, we've touched on this before in previous podcasts. You know, if you give people their feedback, oh, this is something you did six months ago, well, that's a bit late to do anything about it. You know, that's not going to be very particularly helpful for that individual at all. And and the final thing I thought of when you're saying about the amount of information to someone, you'll remember that the, uh, the human brain only processes a limited amount of information typically five pieces of information plus or minus two. So, you know, somewhere between three and three and seven, and typically why a lot of the time in the work that we do, we often work in threes, you know, or fours. Three key things you need to know because people can remember three things. When you say there's 26 things that you need to know, they're probably only going to remember a handful. So, you know, you don't want to download all this information of somebody at one go. And it's possible, too, that the boss would shut down during this appraisal interview and just leave the room because they and they because they weren't practiced in a dialogue. You know, they're, they, they, they know what they want to say. And as soon as there's a, as soon as you try to deviate from the script, they don't know what to say. So they leave. And this is where the training that we do with live actors really comes in handy because we're training managers on how to have a dialogue because we're not using a script. We're using a scenario, but the actors that we're using are improv actors and they're responding in the moment and pushing back in the moment to what you've said. And depending on what you say, they'll, they'll, they'll either go left or right or, or under or over or trying to get around whatever it is you might be saying. So you get practice in responding in an, uh, to improv in these kinds of situations as a boss. Absolutely. And and to cut our boss some slack in here, sometimes if that is a lack of experience, it's, you know, the the training that we give to people and they can experience allows them to think of some strategies that they can use if they find themselves in that position. They suddenly felt they're caught unawares. They're not sure what to say or what to do next. They're able to brainstorm and work some strategies with us rather than just say, well, okay, strategy is... I don't say anything and I leave the room. You know, that's not the one we would be advocating to people in this particular circumstance. No. So we have we have another example here I wanted to, to, to throw to you, Ken. Um, so here we had our listener write in, my boss used to have nicknames for all of her staff. And just give some examples here. Uh, Piglet, Raggedy Ann, Shortstop, which she would use in front of you and to others, whether you like them or not. However, you weren't allowed to address her by a nickname, although we staff had a few for her, her, they said, double exclamation mark. I can imagine they'd have uh, quite a few nicknames for this kind of a boss. (laughs) I'm sure they did. (laughs) It doesn't seem like these are particularly uh, uh, friendly nicknames either. There's there's no affection in these nicknames at all. It seems they're uh, they're meant they're meant to be they're meant to be derogatory. Uh, when you think about those piglet, obviously, uh, shortstop, obviously, Raggedy Ann is uh, you know also speaking to somebody's appearance or haircut or clothing or whatever whatever the other choices those might be. So they're they're very they're very very um, dispiriting nicknames. How do you respond to nicknames, Russell? I hated nicknames when I was a child. I whenever anybody tried to give me a nickname, I always got upset or um, disliked it, and I I never embraced a nickname even through my teens, even in the into my twenties. What about you? Did you? Were you a uh, not, not a person? not a great fan of it? Although you know we know that there are certain you know certain circumstances, certain groups where people you know sports teams, for example, where everybody's got a nickname for everybody else. And I, I, but I always thought the thing is is how how inclusive is it? So is it a nickname there where everybody has a nickname? 
Now, you can be, be careful with this because it depends of are they all derogatory nicknames or are they ones that, you know, people would sort of sort of like. Uh, it tends to be a bit of a mix of it. It's normally something around somebody's characteristic. But the thing for me has always been, well, is it something that everybody has? Do we all take part in that willingly? We all, you know, everybody's got a nickname for somebody and the boss is included. And that was the thing that struck me with this one. It was like, okay, so I'm going to have nicknames for all my team, whether they like it or not. But no one can use a nickname. They can't give me a nickname. And I would have had mm. more respect for the boss if they'd said, okay, you and, and people could call them whatever they liked. Yeah, you know, and then go, okay, so it cuts both ways. This is this is this is a humor which is inclusive that everybody, you know, certain workplaces are different where you do see quite a bit of humor and there's banter between people. But what's fun, is it something that everybody's involved in? to an equal bit, or is it only some people that are allowed to make the jokes and the other people have to be the butt of people's jokes? And I think with this uh, boss, they seem to be in that latter uh, category. You know, I think that that's a good distinguishing uh, feature, Russell, is is it uh, well-intentioned? Is it inclusive? And does it cut both ways? Are three great kind of distinguishing factors. I've worked on a team once, uh, one of my favorite teams that I've worked on, and the everybody on the team got a nickname, and we gave each other nicknames because we, and I, I think we did it deliberately and we did it on purpose because in, in order, I, I think the objective was that we were trying to make ourselves out to be like a band. And we thought if we were a band, what would be our band nicknames? And uh, I think everybody got a either got a, a rapper nickname or some sort of band nickname. And I think um, uh, the I, I think th- there was a fellow on my team named DJ Kelly, who of course became DJ DJ Kelly. There was a, another fellow who became uh, you know he was a he he his high school nickname had been Axe. So we decided he was the lead guitarist in our fictional band, so he would be the Axe. And I, I think and I think I was. Um, I think I my because my name is Ken Cameron. I became Kenny Camaro, and uh, and I, I and I, you know, I as it turned out, I, I really liked that nickname. And it was the first time in my life that I had ever embraced a nickname. And to that particular group of people, I've been Kenny Camaro ever since. And um, it's interesting because in my high school years, somebody had tried to call me Kenny Camaro, and I had pushed back and did, you know wouldn't put up with that at all. But somehow here, there was something about the inclusivity of it. There was something about the team building behind it. There was something about the fact that we were each giving one another nicknames, and we had the opportunity to agree and to take on that nickname, to adopt it for ourselves, or we could have rejected it and, show, and, and encouraged people to choose another one. So it was definitely inclusive and participatory, and I think that made all the difference. But I think sometimes some of the best nicknames, if people outside of the team have got no idea why somebody would be called that. You know, it was like, like when you said the guy's name's Axe. I had another thing as to why he was why would they have the nickname Axe, and and who knows, and perhaps nobody ever really knew why the origins of that came from. But it, it just I, I don't think be... you, I don't think he was Axe. I think he was the Axe. Oh, the Axe. Yeah, right. which which is interesting because he's the nicest guy on earth. So he's not the person you would be thinking of as the Axe or the Hammer or the whatever, right? No, so it well, was, it's uh, uh, but but it, no, but it's 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 an interesting thing. Can be can be good as a team as you just described as a as a team bonding exercise. But it can be quite easily destructive if it's not handled handled carefully. So I think it's one of those things, again, when we're working in our, our teams and leading teams, that we need to be mindful that we follow those points that we mentioned earlier on. Mm-hmm. 
I think so. We've got one last viewer suggestion here, Russell. I'm going to put it on your plate and okay. get you to respond to this. So brace yourself. So okay, I'm this ready. Is a, I'm ready. <laughs> this is a reader who said, and again, this is in our reader's own words, quote, my boss thought that one of the employees was faking a worker's compensation claim. So the boss got the employee to paint a wall 16 times in an attempt to try and prove that the employee was faking. Well, my, my initial thought on, on thinking that is that's probably something my dad would have got somebody to do that was working for him. Um, but then we are talking about something that would have happened probably in the 1950s or 1960s when it was like, you know, this somebody's a malingerer and we need to check out that they're not. Um, but when I looked at it more, 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 more seriously on there, you thought, well, if you had doubts that somebody was actually falsifying a compensation claim, there are other ways that you could do that other than get them to paint a wall 16 times. And was this more a bulging of that line between I'm trying to check out the validity of their claim to I'm coming more into uh, crossing over the line to sort of you know a bullying and harassment? I'm going to get somebody to stand out there and paint this wall 16 times just so that I'm going to make them do it. And they're not going to be able to say no because they work for me and I can fire them. So I'm going to make them do it, and you know, just just to see what to see what happens. And if they do it, then I say, look, you were you were faking. And if they don't do it, then I say, oh, look, you were faking. So you know, it, it had this idea of setting somebody up to fail, um, and had a tone of it being um, a more of a a bullying type approach towards a member of staff rather than um, a, a way of, of, of sort of you know, checking out the validity of their claim because there are a number of ways that they can do it. And I know from, from this example, it's a fairly new, it's not, it's, not, it's not set back in you know, 60, 70 years ago as to what somebody did. You know, this is something that's pretty uh, fairly recent, if I remember rightly, for the example that was given. So uh, I don't think we can even go back and say it was a different time. Mm, mm. But it's it is kind of a, the attitude uh, whole is a holdover from a different time it seems. Yeah, it was a sort of thing that some yeah somebody maybe in the fifties I said like my dad when he was uh, first working that was probably the sort of thing that people got made to do you know but that was something that happened perhaps that was accepted in the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties as something that you earn rights of initiation for somebody but certainly now we're moving into uh, you know twenty twenty one. It's not something that we would be um, advocating to people that this was was okay to do. Um, not when, as I say, there are many other ways that you could get validity for whether that somebody had a, an accurate compensation claim. And to a point you made earlier, if they actually were um, had some injury, you've potentially just made it a lot worse for them by making them do that. And then what do you say? Oh, good, you were telling the truth. Now you can't. You know, now you're off work for three months. I can't really see the point of doing it. No. What other ways would you recommend that a boss uh, explore the validity of a worker's compensation claim? I mean, I think one of the the, the, the most straightforward to is if you if your company has a uh, medical facility, some larger companies do, that you get somebody checked out by the um, the company medic, um, or you get somebody to go to their doctor and have a doctor's certificate. And I know some people say, well, you know, doctors will sign anything, but you know, you're not a doctor as the as the boss. You are not a doctor. Um, so you need to trust the medical profession. If somebody says that they're injured and got injured at work, then you know you can get it checked out by your own health and safety team. Perhaps you have some um, 
you know, ergonomics team, depending on what it is, an ergonomics team or an internal medical team that can do it. Otherwise, you get somebody to go to a legitimate doctor and get a diagnosis and come back with their medical note to say what's happened. And it would be probably the simplest thing to do. This sort of rather strange, archaic, um, you know, Spartan way of getting somebody to, to continue until they collapse to prove to you that they were, that they, were uh, they weren't um, they weren't ill seems to be uh, quite bizarre to be honest. It certainly does. It certainly does. And I guess that brings us to the end of our list of suggestions and of, of bad boss stories that have come in from our listeners. So I want to take this opportunity to thank all of you who wrote in with your bad boss stories and to encourage those of you who haven't shared your bad boss stories with us yet to please send them to us. If you're comfortable sharing them broadly with the public, please enter them in the comment section below. If, however, you want to um, share them more privately, more anonymously with us, then please do send us an email. You can find that at our website at www.ineedtoeffingtalktoyou.com. And that's effing is spelled F-I-N-G. Don't spell out the whole word on the internet. God forbid there should be that kind of language perforating on the, on the internet. Exactly. We don't. We don't. We don't want those sort of complaints coming back from the uh, regulators here to uh, uh, tell us that we're not supposed to be having people write uh, profanity on the internet. We want that stuff stamped out. Okay. No, but, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. We're already on that. We're already walking the effing line with the CRTC yeah. as it is. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and with new legislation potentially coming in in Canada, we would have to be mindful of this. Otherwise, we'd be wrapped over the knuckles. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, Ken and I, you know, we, we both work on the idea of we, that we're trying to in, in, improve and increase the leadership capability of the organizations we work with. So we'd be equally delighted if people wrote to us and said, we cannot find a bad boss example because all our bosses are effing excellent. And if that's the case, we'd love to hear that as well because it's nice to hear some positive stories. Anyway, thanks very much for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed um, this particular episode. Uh, join us again soon. And uh, remember to subscribe by hitting the button below. Okay, bye, everyone. Take care, and we'll see you again in two weeks. <laughs>